Hello and welcome to this latest episode in our series of Commercial Litigation Update podcasts. I'm Maura McIntosh and I'm a professional support consultant in the Disputes team in London. And I'm joined today by Sarah McNally, who's a partner in our insurance disputes practice. Hello, everyone. And also by Kerry Morgan, who's a professional support consultant in our banking litigation team. Hello. In this edition, I'll cover the High Court's decision dismissing Client Earth's attempt to bring a derivative action against Shell's directors, the Supreme Court's rather dramatic recent decision on litigation funding agreements, and a brief update on a development we've previously discussed in relation to class actions. Sarah will then tell us about some interesting recent contract law cases. And finally, Kerry will outline the Supreme Court's seminal judgment in Philip and Barclays, which essentially clarifies the extent of a bank's duties in paying out from customer accounts where the customer is a victim of a fraud. So starting off with the Client Earth action, um, Client Earth is an environmental charity which bought 27 shares in Shell and then sought to launch a derivative action against the company's directors challenging the strategy they had adopted toward energy transition and net zero targets. And as I said in the last episode, Client Earth was refused permission to bring the claim on the papers on the basis that it had failed to meet the initial threshold set out in the statute of establishing a prima facie case. But Client Earth then exercised its right to request an oral hearing. And that hearing took place on the 12th of July and judgment was handed down on the 24th. Now, this second decision confirmed the earlier decision and dismissed the application. And I think taken together, the two judgments really show how difficult it's likely to be for environmental and other campaign groups to use the derivative action procedure to challenge directors' strategic or long-term decision-making. And that's in part because the court will not generally interfere in company management decisions particularly where they require directors to balance competing considerations. And as the latest judgment clarifies, that applies not only to the strategy the directors should adopt, but also how that strategy should be implemented. And the judgments also show that the court's unlikely to grant permission for a derivative action where it considers that the action has been brought for an ulterior purpose, which the court may be willing to infer if the applicant is a campaign group with a very small shareholding, as in this case. Another interesting point that comes out from the latest decision is that the court won't simply assume the claimant's factual case is true in these cases. It will take a more critical approach to the evidence, even at the prima facie case stage. Um, the evidence has to be sufficiently substantial to justify the grant of relief, or at least establish a, a prima facie case to justify the grant of relief. And, and that may mean in some cases that the claimant has to have expert evidence to support its case at this initial stage. Now, Client Earth has announced that it will be seeking permission to appeal. So we'll obviously be keeping an eye on that and we'll report further when we know if that's going ahead. Moving on then to litigation funding. The Supreme Court handed down its decision in the Packer and Road Haulage Association case on 26 July. And as I said, the implications are rather dramatic since it means most existing litigation funding agreements in place for litigation in the English courts are probably unenforceable. I won't go into the facts, but the crux of the decision is that litigation funding agreements with third parties who play no part in the conduct of litigation, but who are to be paid a share of any damages recovered by the claimant, are damages-based agreements, or DBAs, 
within the meaning of the relevant legislation which regulates such agreements. So the upshot is that they have to comply with the relevant regulatory regime, and if they don't, they're unenforceable. Now, the reason that's so dramatic is that participants in the litigation funding market have generally assumed that their agreements are not DBAs, and so are not caught by the relevant regulatory regime, and therefore they haven't really tried to comply with that regime, which is why, as the Supreme Court recognised, most existing litigation funding agreements are probably unenforceable as a result of this decision. Now, there may be ways, of course, that litigation funders can revise their models and renegotiate their agreements so that they are compliant, but quite how all that's going to be done is, is currently unclear. And the implications for collective proceedings in the Competition Appeal Tribunal are particularly dramatic since the funding arrangements that a claimant has entered into is a, is a factor the tribunal has to take into account at the certification stage. And because where collective proceedings are brought on an opt-out rather than opt-in basis, there is a statutory prohibition on the use of DBAs, which will include litigation funding agreements to the extent that they fall within the definition of DBAs as a result of this decision. So it will be interesting to see how all this plays out, both in the competition arena and more generally. And then just briefly on representative actions. We've spoken on a couple of occasions in these podcasts about the arguably rather controversial decision in Commission Recovery and Marks and Clark, in which the High Court allowed a claim for a secret commission to proceed as an opt-out representative action, despite the fact that there were potentially significant differences between the claimant's individual circumstances. And the obvious question is how that can be reconciled with the Supreme Court's decision in Lloyd and Google back in November 2021, which started from the premise that a need to take account of individual circumstances would be inconsistent with the same interest requirement. The Court of Appeals recently granted permission to appeal the Marks and Clark decision, and the appeal is due to be heard on the 21st of November. Um, so that will be one to watch as well. So that's all I wanted to say. Uh, Sarah, I think you're going to tell us about a few recent contract cases, uh, starting with one on the interpretation of contractual indemnities, where I think you acted for the successful claimant in a trial of preliminary issues. That's right, Maura. So this was a trial that took place earlier this year, and it's the case of Padgy and Signa Insurance. And it's interesting in particular for what it has to say about contractual indemnities and whether they will be construed to cover negligence. So in this particular case, the defendant argued that a broadly drafted indemnity against potential liabilities in an insurance business sale agreement didn't cover payments made under a PPI mis-selling redress scheme including because the indemnity clause did not refer expressly to negligence. The defendant relied on a line of authority, starting back in 1952 with the decision in Canada Steamship. And they sought to argue that there's an inherent improbability that one party would agree to assume liability for another party's wrongdoing. Accordingly, they said, a court won't reach that conclusion unless clear words are used. And so essentially, an indemnity won't cover a negligence unless it says so expressly. But the judge agreed with our client that the defendant was putting the matter too highly. As set out in the Supreme Court's 2021 judgment in Triple Point Technology and PTT, 
The modern view is that commercial parties are free to allocate risks as they see fit. The court should certainly bear in mind that a party is unlikely to have agreed to give up a valuable right that it otherwise would have had unless the contract makes that clear. But there is no higher threshold of an inherent improbability to overcome and no need for an express reference to negligence. And here, looking at the contract, the court was satisfied that on its proper interpretation, the indemnity did extend to liabilities based on negligence albeit the judge also considered that if the test of inherent prob improbability was necessary, it was met on the facts. Thanks, Sarah. So, uh, I mean, I know that in recent years, the court's general approach has been to move away from strict rules or, or presumptions when it's interpreting contracts. So uh, this sounds like it's a, a continuation of, of that approach, really, is it? Yes, exactly. So the focus is on how the words are used in the contract and how they would be understood by a reasonable person with the background knowledge available to the parties at the time. And applying fixed rules or presumptions is not really consistent with that. Thanks. Um, so I think your next case is about the construction of a contractual liability cap. Yes, that's right. So this case is Drax Energy Solutions and WIPRO. And the issue was whether the relevant clause imposed an aggregate cap that applied to all claims brought or whether there were multiple caps that applied to each claim. Now, the court commented that the clause had not been well drafted and there was language that could have pointed in both directions. But I think there are two interesting points to note. First, in interpreting the clause, the court drew quite heavily on the drafting of another related clause to inform the meaning of the relevant clause. And in particular, the fact that the same phrase was used in the two clauses, which the judge thought should be construed consistently across both. So this is an issue that arises quite frequently where the court is struggling to understand how a particular clause impacts another clause. And it's really a reminder to think carefully about how the drafting of other clauses might affect interpretation. You really need to make sure that similar wording is intended to have the same meaning and any differences in wording between clauses are there for a reason. And that's obviously a very good reason to make sure that in drafting contracts, one stands back and looks at the drafting as a whole to check for any such inconsistencies. The second interesting point um, is that, as in the Padgy case I spoke about just now, the court again considered the leading Supreme Court decision in triple point. And the fact that a party agreeing a contract probably does not intend to give away its rights unless the clause clearly shows that intention. But the court in the present case noted that the force of that point will vary from case to case. And here the court felt it should not carry very much weight because even on the strictest view of the cap as imposing a single aggregate limit, i.e. the least advantageous, the innocent party was still able to claim for losses up to 11.5 million. Thanks, that's, that's interesting. And finally, I think you want to mention a recent decision on a claim under a warranty and indemnity insurance policy or, or W&I policy. And I think that's an area you have a, a particular interest in, is that right? 
Yes, absolutely. So these cases um, are very interesting because they really sit at the interface between M&A disputes and insurance disputes, because a WNI policy is in effect an insurance policy uh, which responds in the same way that a seller would to a claim for breach of warranty or for a tax indemnity. So it's really at the interface of M&A and insurance um, areas. And the case was Finsbury Foods and Axis Corporate Capital. Um, it's only the second reported English judgment we've seen in a claim under a WNI policy because they've really um, only been around for the last sort of 10 years or so and certainly increasingly in the last few years. So it's interesting simply for that reason um, and also for some uh, interesting lessons it contains for those taking out these policies. So the decision is quite fact specific, but it highlights what may be an obvious point but is worth emphasising. And that is that you won't be able to claim under a WNI policy unless you can establish a breach of warranty which is covered by the policy and that that breach caused you to suffer loss. So you need to give careful thought to the warranties included in the underlying agreement, making sure they are clear and give sufficient protection. And also think about how the price has been calculated. If the court takes the view, as it did in this case, that the price was hardwired by the seller from the outset as something of a reluctant seller, and that you wouldn't have been able to renegotiate it regardless of the matters covered by the warranties, then you may not be able to establish a loss covered by the policy. Remember also that although the knowledge exclusion in a WNI policy is usually quite narrow, requiring actual knowledge on the part of named relevant individuals, there was here a concession that actual knowledge may include willful blindness. So if the court is satisfied that the relevant individuals knew all the essential facts that established the breach of warranty, but were in effect closing their mind to the implications, that may be sufficient for the insurer to seek to avoid liability. Thanks, Sarah. That's all very interesting. Um, Kerry, yeah. over to you. Thank you for waiting patiently. I, I know you're keen to tell us about the the um, Supreme Court decision that came out recently in Philip and Barclays, which I think clarifies the duties banks owe to their customers in executing payment mandates? Yes, thanks, Maura. Uh, the case that I'm going to talk about today is all about how the so-called quince care duty on a financial institution applies where the customer has been the victim of an authorised push payment or APP fraud. Just to explain both of these terms for anyone who isn't familiar with them, an APP fraud is where a bank's customer is induced by fraud to authorise the bank to send a payment to a bank account controlled by the fraudster. So the instruction comes from the customer who deliberately instructs the bank to make the payment rather than coming from the fraudster. The quince care duty has generally been understood as a duty of care owed by the bank to its customer which means that the bank must not execute a payment instruction given on behalf of the customer without making inquiries if it has reasonable grounds to believe that the instruction is an attempt to defraud the customer. But the exact ambit of the duty has been less than clear in the case law as illustrated by the history of this case. So here the claimant, Mrs Phillip, was duped by a fraudster into transferring £700,000 from her account with the defendant bank to an account of the fraudster in the UAE. She brought the claim against the bank, alleging that it owed a quince care duty to protect her from the consequences of the payments. 
the High Court struck out the claim initially, essentially on the basis that the Quince Care Duty only applied to corporate customers or unincorporated associations, where the instruction to the bank was given by the customer's agent. The Court of Appeal disagreed, finding that the duty applied more broadly than the agency situation. So in the Court of Appeal's judgment, it was possible that the duty could arise in the context of an APP fraud, and that was enough to dispose of the appeal. Whether or not the duty arose on the facts of this case was a matter to be determined at trial. The bank appealed to the Supreme Court, which has now overturned the Court of Appeal's decision and granted summary judgment in favour of the bank, and at the same time clarified the nature and scope of the Quince Care duty. The Supreme Court criticised the reasoning in the Quince Care line of authorities, which had generally started from the premise that banks owe two conflicting contractual duties to their customers, which had to be reconciled. First, a duty to execute a valid instruction to transfer money promptly. And secondly, a duty to exercise reasonable care in executing such an instruction. The Supreme Court said that this reasoning was flawed. Properly analysed, the bank's duty to comply with a valid payment instruction is strict. The Supreme Court acknowledged that within the contract between the bank and the customer, there will be an implied term that the bank will carry out its services with reasonable skill and care, but this is limited and applies only to interpreting, ascertaining and acting in accordance with the instructions of a customer. So this duty focuses purely on whether the payment instruction is valid and clear, which is a narrow way of drawing the scope of duty. Importantly, there will never be a conflict between this general duty and the duty to execute a valid instruction, because if the payment instruction is valid, the duty of reasonable skill and care will not be engaged. The obvious implication is that the duty of reasonable skill and care can't arise in the context of an app fraud, because by definition, the payment instruction is validly made by the customer who is the victim of the fraud. In the Supreme Court's judgment, the Quince Care duty is simply an application of this general duty to ascertain and implement the customer's instructions, which will only arise in an agency scenario, i.e. where an agent of the customer purports to give a payment instruction. If there are reasonable grounds to suspect that the instruction is an attempt to defraud the customer, then the so-called Quince Care duty requires the bank to make inquiries to verify that the instruction has actually been authorised and to refrain from making the payment in the meantime. The concept of reasonable suspicion is most readily understood by looking at the example of where a customer's agent gives a fraudulent payment instruction to the bank. In this example, the agent will have no actual authority, but may still have apparent authority. Even if the agent is acting fraudulently, the bank will be entitled to rely upon the agent's apparent authority unless it has reasonable grounds to suspect that the instruction is an attempt to defraud its customer. If those red flags for reasonable suspicion exist, then it will impact the validity of the customer's instruction, making the validity unclear. And this is where the bank's duty of reasonable skill and care will kick in because the validity of a payment instruction is in question. As I explained, where the duty is engaged, this will mean checking that the payment is actually authorised by the customer and pressing pause on sending the funds in the meantime. 
The Supreme Court made it clear that this doesn't mean the Quince Care Duty is limited to corporate customers. It will apply whenever one person is given authority to give payment instructions to a bank on behalf of another. So, for example, in the context of a joint account mandate, but only where the bank is on notice that the payment may, in fact, be unauthorised. Thanks, Kerry. Um, I, I can see how the duty could still arise outside the corporate context so long as the instructions given by an agent. But does the court's reasoning also mean that the duty won't arise in the corporate context if the agent's acting innocently? So if you've got directors of a company who authorise a payment on behalf of the company because they've been duped by a fraudster to pay out, but the directors themselves aren't part of the fraud, I assume the same reasoning would apply. So the instruction is valid, even if it was induced by fraud, and therefore the bank's only duty is to execute the instruction in that case? Yes, you're absolutely right, Maura. I think the, the key to this case is all about the word validity. Thank you. Very interesting. Uh, so that's the end of our podcast. I'll just thank Sarah and Kerry, and obviously thank all of you for listening. And we'll be back with another update in a couple of months.